I said we weren't going to talk about Hosea this morning, and we're not. I'm going to spend a, a, spend a little time talking, you, talking to you guys about another prophet, um, the prophet Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk obviously was a little bit down on, down on the schedule for us, and so this sermon is a, a, extremely unpolished because I started working on it last night. But I felt it was necessary to preach this message, even as unpolished as it is. And I felt it, I felt it for one reason. Brittany Myers and Darren Myers. And we've been talking around Brittany and Darren. So for those of you all who may still be watching, I don't know if anybody's watching this morning, but if you are watching, or if you're in the room and you don't know who they are, they're beloved members of our church. And Brittany, a few years ago, still in her early 20s, was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And we've been praying for Brittany and praying for Darren. And, and God has shown himself faithful in ways known and unknown. Primarily, to be honest with you, he's shown himself faithful through Brittany herself. And how she has suffered well for the glory of Christ. But this week we got news that um, Brittany can no longer digest. And so they have sent her home in her early 20s. And like I said, she's now standing in that dichotomy of faith where we could see God move miraculously or we could see God call her home, and we don't know what's ahead of us. But in the midst of that, I thought about Habakkuk, because in these moments, I find myself asking the question, how long? How long? And I find myself asking the question, why? Questions like, why do we have to wrestle with the problem of evil and the problem of injustice and the problem of suffering? Why do we have to wrestle with that so much? And why do we have to experience evil, experience injustice, and experience suffering for so long? How long must we cry out before God seemingly will actually respond and listen to our pleas. And so out of all the minor prophets, out of all the 12, this prophet spends the most time wrestling with this question or these questions. He asks these questions of God. And there are no questions in need of answers than these questions. Or there are no, no greater questions, rather, in need of answers than these questions. In fact, you see that there's a great urgency to these questions very quickly in this book. Because Habakkuk, he starts the book by saying the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. The oracle actually means a burdened message, a message with weight, a message with gravity, a message with urgency that must be shared. 
What's especially interesting about the book of Habakkuk is that this is not a message from God through Habakkuk to the people. Actually, this is rather a message from the people through Habakkuk to God. And so this is, a, this is Habakkuk speaking back to God on behalf of the people, not just those people back then, but people like you and I who are saying, how long? Why, why must this still happen? Why must suffering like this and why must devastation and destruction and violence and, and injustice, why must this happen the way that it does? But in the midst of that conversation that Habakkuk is having with God, God is actually giving Habakkuk a word and he is giving the people a word and he is giving us a word. Now, the book of Habakkuk takes on this, this kind of outline. It, it, it starts with two responses that are given, or it starts rather with two prayers that are actually grievances to God. So Habakkuk is giving God these grievances, and then God is responding to those grievances. So two prayers that are shaped in grievance, two responses back to God, and then a final prayer that is laced in praise and adoration for God. And so the question is, how do you get from grievance to praise? Because that's where we end up. And that's the story of Habakkuk. That's what the book is about. Now, the first complaint that, that Habakkuk gives God is, evil is raging, God. Are you listening? Evil is raging, do you care? He says it in verse 2. He says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? He continues on and he says, Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is looking around at what is transpiring in his native land of Judah, and all he sees is suffering and injustice and unaddressed evil and devastation and, and all of these things that are happening around him in his native land is leading him to ask God this simple question for himself and for those who are suffering alongside him. How long, O oh Lord? How long will we cry out for relief with seemingly no Answers. How long will we plead for the violence to stop with seemingly no answers? How long will evil go seemingly unpunished? How long will strife and division seemingly or be seemingly allowed to have its way? And isn't this the question? Isn't this the question that bubbles to the surface of most of our hearts and our souls? How long, Lord? How long must evil appear to triumph? How long must good people suffer? How long must we be so unbelievably divided? How long must life be 
this hard? In fact, it's this question that most typically leads folks to become the evil that they are waiting for the Lord to handle. It's this very question. Oftentimes what happens is we become immoral because what's the use in restraining immorality if you're not going to address it, God? We become callous because what's the use in caring if it doesn't appear that you care? We stop praying because what's the use in praying if it doesn't appear that you're listening? How long is one of the biggest questions? How long is one of the hardest questions? And, and make no mistake, how, how long is one of the most dangerous questions? Nevertheless, isn't this the question that many people like us often confront God with in the privacy of our homes and in the pool of our own tears? How many of you this morning identify with the prophet Habakkuk as he pleads, how long, God? I know I certainly do. We can all identify. Habakkuk gives his frustrations to God and his frustrations with God, in a sense, a connection to his senses. He says, I'm crying out, I'm shouting, I'm yelling, God, will you not hear my cry? I'm yelling, God, will you not hear my cry? I'm seeing evil and injustice and division and treachery everywhere I turn. Do you not see it to God? Do you not notice it? This angst and this weariness Habakkuk feels with his whole body. I'm watching with my eyes this injustice happening and you don't appear to respond. I'm crying out with my mouth for you to respond, but you don't appear to be listening. This very urgent but natural complaint leads to God's first response that we find in verse 5. He says in verse 5, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now this verse does not mean what most people think it means. Most people when they read this, they're talking about God's going to be doing amazing things and watch how much money you're about to get. He's going to do so, much, so many things that you can't even believe what's about to happen. That's not what this verse means. But before we get into what this verse does mean, I do want to focus on what God initially says back to Habakkuk. He says, look, 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 see, behold, be astounded, wonder. In other words, God's response back to Habakkuk in a nutshell is, I absolutely and positively see, but now I need you to see what I see. Habakkuk brings his complaint to God with words like, why are you forcing me to look at all of this evil? How can you watch and not do anything? Habakkuk is bringing the questions like, don't you see what's going on? Can't you see the injustice and the, and the evil and the immorality and the suffering? And God responds, you're asking me to look. No, you look. You're complaining that I'm watching and not doing anything, but in reality, it is you who do not see. Has anyone ever had the experience of making a bad purchase that other people around you knew was bad, but for some reason you didn't know it was bad? 
I was once in, high, in college, I was connected to one of those pyramid scheme things that promised me that I would make, you know, quick wealth and get rich really, really quick. And I was telling all my friends about it, and then they were getting convinced, and we were all convinced and locked in on it um, because I had, some of my friends had told me about it, and I was convinced, and so we were all telling everyone else about it. But one person that we were friends with wasn't all that interested in the idea. They asked a ton of questions. They were super, super skeptical about it all. And instead of encouraging us, they were discouraging us from, from participating. And I thought it was really so outlandish. I mean, how are you going to ruin this opportunity to make so much money? What are you doing? But it wasn't them that couldn't see. It was me. You see, they had already seen a similar pyramid scheme's inner workings. And they had already played it out. It had seen the result of the system. In other words, they had seen more which is why they didn't respond in the way that we thought that they should respond. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, for the young men and the young, young, young women that might be watching or in the room, so much of your capacity to succeed in life will depend on how much you're willing to trust those who have gone ahead of you. When you, see, when you say, don't you see how good this is? And they idly respond, eh, I don't know if it's that good, actually. You have to process that through the understanding that they may not be disagreeing because they don't see. They may be disagreeing because they see more. This happens a million times more when it comes to us and God, however, because God sees infinitely more clearer than the older gentleman and the older lady that might be in this room. Here's the truth. We often accuse God of missing, or rather what we often accuse God of missing is just evidence of our own lack of sight. And so God responds, look, look, see. I'm preparing to take major action in your land. You don't even know what's happening. You don't even know what I'm about to do. I'm about to do something so spectacular that you're not even going to believe it when I tell you about it. See, God is all-powerful. He's all-wise, meaning that God not only has the power to end injustice in an unjust world, but God also has the wisdom in order to demonstrate his power in the perfect way at the perfect time that will lead to maximum glory and maximum praise from his people throughout all of eternity. And so God is saying, look at what I'm about to do. And what is he going to do? Verse 6 through 11, he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. He's talking about a group of people who praises and worships their military might. You talk about nationals, these are true blue 
red-blooded nationalists, and they are loving their country in such a way that they are stacking their military to the heavens, and they worship this force. And they come in forcefully and swiftly and quickly and take out people by the hundreds and by the thousands. He says their horses are swifter than leopards. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come in and they take things out quickly and speedily. They're kings. They scoff at other nations. They laugh at them. And they are evil. They are evil. They are wicked. And so God says, I'm sending them to straighten Judah out. Big, bad, ferocious Babylon. You don't know what's going on because you don't see what I see. But I'm sending them, and they're about to take things out. And so Habakkuk has a second complaint that he raises. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So this is what Habakkuk in his second complaint brings to God. He says, hold, hold on. I didn't realize that this was the way you were going to set Judah straight, is by bringing a nation that's more evil than Judah. What, what, no, I'm, I need you to reckon with evil. I need you to reckon with injustice. I need you to reckon with suffering. Not by bringing a group of people that's more evil and more unjust and, and, and delve out more suffering. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm thankful that you're going to clean up Judah and humble us. But not by sending more wretched people is how Habakkuk responds. And then God tells him this. And this is the second response that God gives in, verse, in chapter 2. He tells Habakkuk, write the vision. Write the vision. This is another verse that we have heard a million times, and it does not mean what we think it means. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its pointed time, it hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
And so God tells Habakkuk to write the vision down, make it plain. Why? Why does he tell him to do that? For still the vision waits, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Why does he say that? He says, because I'm going to reckon with the Babylonians. I'm going to reckon with the Chaldeans. But you must be patient. And so why does he tell, the, why does he tell Habakkuk to write the vision down? Write the vision down because you're going to need to go back to it when it seems like I'm not moving. Are you tracking with this? The promises of God in this book we refer to often. They're written down for us. Why? Because there are times we need to come back when it seems like God is not moving. And remind ourselves that God has not forgotten us. And that God's, God's purposes are sure and his promises are sure and they will be fulfilled. And so he tells Habakkuk to write it down because you're going to come back and you're going to realize one day God told me that he was going to do this. God told me he was going to set these things right. Now, it's going to be very ugly from the time that I fulfill, I mean, from the time that you write it down to the time that I fulfill. Babylon is coming. Destruction is coming. Hurt and pain is coming. Suffering is coming. But write this vision down. Make it plain and be patient because my promises are sure. Does that make sense? And then from there he begins to unpack the woes that will come upon this nation that he is using to judge his nation. Those woes are in five categories. He starts in verse 2 and he says this. I'm sorry, verse 6. And in verse 6 he talks about this first woe. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him who, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities and all who dwell. He says, woe to Chaldean, uh, the Chaldeans. Woe to Babylon. Why? Because they increase and cheat people out of their money with unfair, unfair interest and they, and they put people people in heavy debts that they cannot escape. And so they're basically cheating and robbing people. And for that, God says they will be plundered one day of all of their goods and all of their resources. The second woe he gives in verses 9 through 11, the, the woe of exploitation. He says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe. From the reach of harm, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, and you have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. He says, you have, you have paid people low wages and used this to basically elevate yourself into high places with big houses and lots of property. And because of that, the wood in your woodwork is crying out. The stone in your stone structure is crying out, and it will come back upon you. That's his second woe. His third woe. 
You find in verse 12 through 14, God says there, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people, people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to those who are just simply interested in conquering and conquering and conquering and going from nation to nation to nation and building towns in dripped and drenched in blood. The fourth woe in verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out of your wrath, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your, your glory. He says you are basking in immorality and drunkenness and, and lasciviousness and all sorts of different party and reveling. He says, but the cup of the Lord, you, you are pouring cup after cup after cup, getting people drunk so that you can expose them. But the cup of the Lord, the cup of judgment is coming upon you. So he talks to Babylon and basically he says, he says yes, Habakkuk, I know what Babylon is. So write this vision down. I will judge Babylon in due season and in due time. And the last woe he gives is to idolatry. He says, what profit, verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. And so the woe is for Babylon's idolatry. Yes, they make wooden models and statues and they put, them, they put them together and they worship them and they idolize them. They make metal statues and they idolize them and they pray to them and they ask them of their fate. And God says, woe to him who says, to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. And so he speaks to idolatry. He says, yes, the nations that are built on idolatry, woe to them. He speaks to the nations of war. He says, yes, the nations that are built on war, woe to them. He speaks to the nations of, of lasciviousness and, 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 and reveling and partying and drunkenness. And he says, woe to that nation. He speaks to the nations of greed and exploitation. And he says, woe to that nation. You ask, in other words, Habakkuk asks the same questions we ask. When are you going to address this, God? And he says, I'm going to address all of it in due season. Your timing is not my timing, but write it down, make it plain, so that when I address it, you can come back and say, yeah, God said he was going to do it all alone. Now, I know I'm running long, but let me give you this as we wrap up, because all of this ties to what I want to say here, which is basically as you look to the last chapter, chapter 3, here's Habakkuk's final response. And the final response actually begins in the very last verse in chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. These last words in chapter 2 are not just a fitting conclusion to the woe statements from chapter 2, even though they are. 
But these last words are also a fitting conclusion to all of Habakkuk's complaints that he's been given the Lord. They are a reminder that through all the injustice, all the evil, all the suffering, all the immorality, God is alive and in his temple. God is sacred and set aside and holy. God is powerful. God is wise. And we are not. That's why you hear the words, let the earth keep silent. God is in the holy temple. He's high. He's set apart. He's holy. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's wise. Let the earth keep silent. You are not God. The created is not on the level of the creator. You know, sometimes you tell a two-year-old, no, we're not going to do it this way. And they scream and they cry and they pout. And there are times that you may feel compelled to give an explanation. But probably just as often, if not more often, you don't feel a need to explain yourself concerning all the details as to why you told them, no, we're not going to do it this way. You don't tell that two-year-old to share their toys because the inability to share one day may lead them to semi-sociopathic behavior that leaves them incapable of feeling empathy for others and their needs. You just say, hey, we need to share because Jesus shared. Your parents shared. And I just asked you to share. And I'm going to discipline you if you don't. And they're going to cry and they're going to pout and they're going to, you know, pass out and do all the things that they do. But you don't go into lengthy expositional detail as to why you told them to share. What do I look like explaining myself to a two-year-old kid in, in terms of these heavy matters? He or she isn't even close to my spiritual and emotional and intellectual development. It would be a waste of my time and a waste of their time per, practic, uh, um, practically, basically. And yet we expect all the answers from the created God of the universe. And not only do we expect all the answers, we expect them in the way that we would answer them, even though we are not even remotely close to him. We are not remotely close to his omnipotence, not remotely close to his omnipresence, not remotely close to his, his omniscience. Part of the journey in doubt is not always getting the exact answers to all of our questions. Rather, our journey in doubt requires us to remember two truths for us to climb out of it, and it is this. How unbelievably small we are in the grand scheme of the universe and how unbelievably big God is in the grand scheme of the universe. Every single time we place ourselves in the position of the high, our questions get more and more pronounced and shaped in this way. How could this happen to me? How could this happen to us? Why doesn't God answer in the time in which I believe he should? Why doesn't God answer like I think he should? Every time we place ourselves in that position, that's where our doubt festers. And we will ignore all evidence to the points of God's reality. And we will fix our attention only on the doubts. Yeah, I know he's created this perfectly created universe that I have no real answers for other than an all-powerful God, but what about my hardship? Yeah, I know there's a resurrected Savior that I have no real answers for other than an all-loving God, but what about my pain? 
Yeah, I know there's a human conscience that points us to a rule and a standard of justice that I really don't have any answers for other than an all-good God, but what about this injustice that I've experienced? You see, when we place ourselves properly in the position of the lowly, in the position of the two-year-old, we remember that not only are there some questions that God is not compelled to give us answers to, but we also remember that there are some questions that we couldn't even, that he couldn't even give us answers to because we couldn't handle the answers. So the journey from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is a journey of Habakkuk not only hearing from God, but being reminded through the answers God gives him that he is not God. God is beyond his reach. And it is for this reason that you hear what Habakkuk gives us in chapter 3. Habakkuk's prayer takes on praise. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, and O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so he begins to pray this. He says, God, listen, I see you now. So my prayer is, revive us, enlighten us, and have mercy on us. In other words, keep us. Keep us. And show us your ways. Show us you. And show us how you operate. And, 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 when, and should the destruction come, just have mercy on my people. Have mercy on us. You see how his prayers are now shifting because of who he sees God as and who he sees himself as. His prayers move not only to, um, to, a, to a different posture in that way, but his mo prayers move to a praise also. You hear praise, for example, in verse 4, he says, His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, talking about God. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. All of this is praise now. In other words, he says, look, I realize how small I am. I realize how big you are. When I look at the creation, when I look at the sun and the moon and the stars, when I look at the composition of the mountains, the Appalachians, the Smokies, the Rockies, the desert flats, the grassy plains, the Mississippi River, the oceans, the seas, the gulf. When I see this, I see that you are higher than me. And I see that you are in control of far more than I've ever imagined. When I went out to the, when I went out to the Gulf of Mexico this Monday, I looked out there, and not only did I see a big God, I saw a God that didn't owe me all the answers. I looked out there, I said, man, I don't even know where to start in terms of how you put all this together. So why would I expect all the answers from y'all? I don't even know where to begin when I look at this. When I look at what I see, I don't even know where to begin. And this is what Habakkuk is describing here in chapter 3 as he thinks about all of creation. He says to himself, God, revive us, enlighten us, have mercy on us. Last thing that you see in this, in this book is the very last verses that are some of the most popular verses in all the scripture. He says that, verse 17, Through the fig, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Initially, Habakkuk was saying, why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why is there no fig tree blooming? Why is there no olive produce? Why is there no fields that are yielding food? Why are the flocks cut off from the fold? Why is there no herd in the stalls? But as he begins to see his lowliness compared to God's highness, as he begins to see his smallness compared to God's bigness, then all of a sudden, the question turns from why to so what? It does not matter. If there is nothing in the field, I will still hold fast to this God who will, who will fulfill his promises concerning his people. If there is no bloom on the tree, I will still hold fast to this God who will, who will fulfill his promises concerning his people. Saints of God, there will be heroes of the faith on both sides of the divide. We will see the miraculous. We will see death. We will see suffering. We will see sickness. We will see hardship and heartache. But write the vision down and make it plain. Meaning, God has promised us that all things will work together for the good, for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. God has promised us that the present afflictions shall not compare to the glory which shall be revealed. God has promised us that death will be defeated, that sin will be defeated through Christ, and that we will all know a resurrection, and that we all will experience an eternity. And though that vision may tarry, write it down and wait for it, because our God is sure to fulfill it. He has shown himself faithful. He has shown himself faithful. When you look back on your life, you see the faithfulness of God. Do not allow the moments the hurtful moments, don't, don't get me wrong, the painful moments, but don't allow the painful moments to undermine everything that you have already seen your God do and everything that your God has promised to do. Hold fast to God. Hold fast to God.